0: Early state historian James H. McClintock, as much as anyone, helped solidify the legend of the great divide of ranching. He would write, quote, Cattle and sheep could no more occupy a range in common than oil and water could flow coherently. So the cowpuncher hated the sheepherder with a hatred that was deep and intense, and the shepherd girded himself with artillery and sullenly stood on the defensive. End quote. And this hatred, he claims, turned into an incessant struggle between the two sides, with flocks sometimes being driven into the most inhospitable places to eliminate the competition. Although the great feud between cowboys and shepherds is undoubtedly mythologized much beyond the fact, there is no question that in some cases there was friction. But it was never as simple as one side versus the other. Some cowboys wanted to drive every last sheep away, while others wanted to raise them alongside their prize cattle. Because during the era we are now talking about, both these animals were an economic engine that was running at full speed. Across the entirety of Arizona, everyone tried to get in on the action of the hairy banknotes that munched on the territory's seemingly plentiful fodder. Lives, fortunes, and whole dynasties were built upon the cow and the sheep, and if you could just get a piece of that action, you could be made for life. For cattle especially, the 1880s meant rampant investment, speculation, uncontrolled hype, and overstocking. However, as we'll see, if you weren't careful, you could wind up losing everything. Not to mention the very range that you had tried to build your fortune upon. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ. The History of Arizona. Episode 119, Herds and Flocks. Welcome back, everyone. I hope you enjoyed last week's spooky Halloween-themed break and the assortment of mysterious and strange tales I dug up from around the Grand Canyon state. But with the holiday now behind us, we need to plug ahead with our main story. As you might recall from two weeks ago, we are currently doing a deep dive into some of the economic ripples happening across Arizona in the 1880s. First, we discussed the building of the first railroads across the territory, which finally made Arizona less of an obstacle for people trying to get to California, and more of a destination in its own right. It also will impact today's subject, cows. Arizona's cattle industry was really at its heyday in the 1880s. In fact, as we'll see, it was heading swiftly for a collapse in the early 1890s, so it definitely bears talking about. Cattle were introduced to Arizona as part of the Coronado Expedition that we talked about way back in episode 5, but these were brought along for butchering, not for ranching or establishing a breeding population at all. As I briefly mentioned back in episode seven, ranching in Arizona has its roots with none other than Father Eusebio Kino, who dispersed cattle and horses to several of the rancherias in the Pimeria Alta. After the establishment of the peace by purchase policy, see episode twelve, there came about thirty years of quiet, where Hispanic ranchers were able to set up on large tracts of land in southern Arizona to tend to their growing herds. The ranches would become part of the myth of the insanely prosperous, nearly paradisiacal Mexican Arizona that so many American boosters would use in mid-19th century propaganda. However, in reality, these operations were never really that big, and would all be abandoned by the mid-1840s as waves of Apache attacks caused everyone to hunker down in Tucson or Sonora for protection. In episode 21, we talked about how the Mormon Battalion had a fairly momentous run-in with a few feral cattle left in the state in 1846, but apparently, less than a decade later, this population had to die out. The gold rush had created a high-demand market in California, so Texans began herding their longhorns across the desert to take advantage. Despite the thousands of miles of dusty road, Raiding by the Apache and Comanche, steep ferry prices, or the hazard of swimming to get across the Colorado, the economic incentives were great enough to keep people interested. A Longhorn that could be bought for between $5 and $15 a head could be sold for anywhere between $60 and $150 a head once they had made it to California. During the 1850s, some Arizona pioneers such as William Kirkland and William S. Owry trying to start small outfits at the Canoa Ranch in Tucson, respectively, but with limited success, though Kirkland would later claim that he had been the first white man to bring cattle to the territory. These local outfits were helped along greatly by the presence of the military installations that began to populate Arizona throughout the 1850s and 1860s, which created a great demand for beef to feed the troops. One of those to make a lot of hay out of this demand was Henry Clay Hooker, known by the honorific of Colonel Hooker, though he was a colonel in the same way that Colonel Sanders is a colonel. And we've actually met Hooker very briefly before, in episodes 95 and 100, when Crook names him to supply beef to the San Carlos Reservation. And then Hooker quit that gig because of an ugly encounter with Crawford. Hooker had come to the Arizona Territory in 1867, after his town in California had literally burned to the ground, and he had scraped together some funds by driving turkeys over the Sierra Madres to hungry miners in what is today Carson City, Nevada. And yes, I am serious about that. The man herded turkeys. But once in Arizona, he would start ranching to supply the military, and in 1872, he bought the Sierra Bonita Ranch in the Sulphur Springs Valley which was close to the reservations and several forts, making it ideal for raising beef. By the mid-1870s, Hooker had 11,000 cattle at his ranch. He was also trying to improve the quality of the beef he was raising, experimenting with Durham, Shorthorn, and Devon bulls of various lineages and points of origin, but where he and others found the most success was with Herefords. And yes, please let me know if I'm saying that wrong. I'm basically pronouncing it like the small town in Cochise County, south of Sierra Vista, which was named for this type of cattle, but I'm still not 100% sure that's how it should be said. But Hooker was presaged in his use of Herefords by another Easterner-turned-Arizona rancher named Colin Cameron, who had taken over the San Rafael de la Zarja land grant near Patagonia, which we mentioned sometime back in the misty past as well. In November 1883... Admit much criticism from his neighbors, Cameron turned out 60 month old bulls to pasture. These hadn't acclimated yet, and his neighbors were sure that the coming winter would kill them all. However, when spring rolled around, not only were they alive, but they were all flourishing. It turns out that Herefords had just the qualities needed to thrive in Arizona, and they soon became the dominant breed in the territory. Other notables making a go at cattle ranching were Walter Vale and his partner, H.R. Bishop, who started the Empire Ranch on the eastern side of the Santa Ritos, north of Senoida, that would one day grow to be 180 square miles. And this ranch is still there today, having since been put on the National Register of Historic Places, with its historic buildings being preserved. And if we head up north, we find that the arrival of the railroad suddenly made people realize that they could live in the not-so-scorching part of Arizona, and that there was plenty of grass for grazing. One of those who took advantage of this was John W. Young, who we met two weeks ago when he helped supply railroad ties for the Atlantic and Pacific. Young started up the Mormon Cattle Company and began to run the first stock around the greater Flagstaff area. Unfortunately, Young was one of those who had to skip town in order to avoid charges of being a polygamist, and so in 1885, he had to abandon his ranching project. His business partners soon renamed the company the Arizona Cattle Company, or as it was more often known, the A1. By the late 1880s, this outfit was running some 16,000 cows between Lake Mary and the Grand Canyon, and between Ash Fork and the Little Colorado River. At the same time, Another famous cattle operation was also setting up shop. In 1884, an Atlantic and Pacific Railroad stockholder went west to check on his investment. And at the time, a good amount of rain had fallen and caused grass to grow like crazy, and so to the stockholder, it looked like the promised land. So he went back east and rallied investors, who raised $1.3 million to form the Aztec Land and Cattle Company. Buying grazing rights from the railroad, the Aztec would run something like 60,000 head of cattle on 2 million acres of private and government land between Holbrook and Flagstaff. And though they were officially the Aztec Land and Cattle Company, they were better known as the Hash Knife, as their brand resembled a common cooking tool of the same name used on chuck wagons. Both these outfits I just talked about, the A1 and the Hash Knife, would end up selling out to the same organization that of a group of brothers from Cincinnati who would build a dynasty in the Flagstaff area. These would be the Babbitt brothers, the first two of which arrived in Flagstaff in 1886. The Babbitts had been grocers in Cincinnati, but after arriving in Arizona, they decided to pool their money and buy a small cattle outfit between Flagstaff and Winslow. In honor of their hometown, they would name this operation the C.O. And the CO would eventually gobble up the A1 in 1899, and then the hash knife in 1902. And just because I can, I will add here that this Babbitt family would give the state of Arizona its 16th governor, Bruce Babbitt. The mid-1880s were the boom years for the cattle industry. Reports of Arizona's good climate and plentiful grasses were everywhere, with one writer rapturously reporting, quote, here the climate is almost perpetual spring, and even in the driest season the feed never fails, and the owner can sit under the shade of his comfortable hacienda and see his herds thrive and increase winter and summer." Quote. This propaganda brought more and more investment, usually from East Coast and British investors, ready to make money on the cheap land out west. Between 1885 and 1887, more than half of the land bought under the Homestead-inducing Desert Land Act belonged to people who didn't actually live in Arizona. And the number of cows went from 652,500 in 1885 to just under a million a few years later. In fact, by 1885, the local market was thoroughly oversaturated. So, for example, in 1881, a three-year-old steer brought in $15. Two years later, the same steer was worth $35. But due to oversaturation, and some rather large overstocking of the range, the price then plummeted to $10 by 1885. So, Arizona began to export beef to the rest of the country in order to make a profit. And this coincided so neatly with the rise of railroad lines across the territory that the cattlemen naturally turned to them to ship their animals, despite grumblings about how much they were being gouged for shipping costs. And this wasn't idle chatter. The cost of moving cattle from Ash Fork to Los Angeles did double. This even drove some ranchers to turn to that age-old method of the cattle drive. And after enough grumbling and an actual rebuke by a national stock growers convention, in 1886, the railroads actually did something to help ranchers by introducing new Burton livestock cars on the line from Winslow to Kansas City. These new cars were apparently a huge improvement over the older models, with cattle losing only an average of 53 pounds on the journey compared to the average of 188 pounds that it had been. In the end, despite any of the difficulties, many simply ate the cost of transporting their cattle via rail, mainly because they were selling like hotcakes. State historian Marshall Trimble says that Colonel Hooker did so much business shipping his cattle via the Southern Pacific Railroad that they actually stopped charging him a fare to travel. He also passes along the amusing but likely apocryphal story that one day Hooker got on the train telling the conductor, I'm Hooker, I ride free and then right behind him came a woman who said, well, I'm a hooker too, do we all ride for free? Arizona's cattle boom would last into the first years of the 1890s, but the good times, as they say, couldn't last. Even as investors were pouring more and more cattle into the territory, every source of water had been claimed, and the range that had seemed endless was now being filled up. By the end of the 1880s, Yavapai County alone had 1,035 registered brands, and practically every acre of rangeland was being used. As one cattleman later lamented, quote, "...what a lot of blind men we all were. Nobody wanted to sell a cow for anything. It was numbers and nothing else. We fondly imagined that these wonderful ranges would last forever and couldn't be overstocked." End quote. Officially, the number of cattle in Arizona at this time was 720,940, but experienced ranchers say the actual number was double that, around 1.5 million. And unfortunately, the ranges could definitely be overstocked, and an unprecedented crop of calves were dropped onto Arizona's land in 1891, just in time for a summer that was basically monsoonless. No rain meant no grass, which meant nothing for cows to forage on. Colin Cameron down in Patagonia said, quote, When the rainy season had passed and not one-half the usual amount of water had fallen, when it was seen that all the old grass was gone, that the new crop was a failure, it began to dawn upon the ranchmen that there was a limit to the number of cattle that the range would feed. Quote. Despite this at first, ranchers refused to sell off their livestock, feeling no great sense of panic. Weather is unpredictable, you know, and they would just have to wait until the next season. But then the summer of 1892 came and went with no rain, followed by a dry winter and a dry spring. By 1893, creeks and other water sources were all dried up, which was bad news for the cattle. As state historian Thomas Sheridan observed, quote, "'Cattle died like flies all over the territory.'" but the losses were greatest in southern Arizona, where 50-75% to of all animals perished. End quote. It was an ecological and economic disaster, as cattle either died of thirst or were hurriedly shipped somewhere else. And the nationwide panic of 1893 didn't help matters as the price of beef nosedived to an all-time low of $9.80 a head. Suddenly, getting rid of cows was an everyone's mind, but with low prices and a glutted market, well, it wasn't good. The only reason that the Babbitt's CO outfit survived was because the brothers had taken some sage advice early on and had diversified their investments. Their mercantile and real estate holdings helped keep the CEO afloat throughout these rough times. Obviously, the cattle industry was not going to just shrivel up and die, as cattle is one of Arizona's fabled 5Cs, but the whole market had learned a harsh lesson in the early 1890s. And it was a lesson that had another lasting impact. No rain meant no grass, which meant dead cows. But it also meant erosion, which meant flooding, which meant bad news for any farmer with a canal near stream beds. So the effects of overstocking and overgrazing would be felt for years to come and beyond just this one industry. But we're going to leave off talking about the cattle industry here, as they need some time to sit down and recover from what the heck just happened. So I want to turn our attention to another aspect of grazing, and that is sheep. Now, sheep have been around for a good long while, having been introduced by the Spanish into New Mexico in the 17th century. And for a long time, the sheep farmers in Arizona were the Hopis and the Navajo, who, despite rejecting these bearded white weirdos and their god, were more than happy to take their animals. At one point, I mentioned back in episode 45 that in the 1850s, the Navajos were called the Lords of New Mexico, partially because of their large flocks. I also mentioned in episode 8 how much of the ranching done by Juan Bautista de Anza the Elder along the Santa Cruz was sheep. Most of the sheep branching done was of a small scale and subject to the same persistent rating from Apache that was also plaguing the cattle industry. Still, according to official reports from the Department of Agriculture, there were only 803 head of sheep being raised by non-Amerindians in 1870, which then jumped to 698,404 sheep in 1890. And much like the cattle industry, the railroad opened up whole new markets for lamb, mutton, and wool, which helped the industry grow beyond just what could be consumed domestically. Early state historian James H. McClintock says that the first large-scale importing of sheep into Arizona was by a man named Felix Scott, who brought a flock into the Little Colorado River Valley, and from there they spread into the Tonto Basin and then even over to the Mojave area. Soon enough, the sheep from New Mexico would be replaced with other lineages being shipped in from other areas of the country. Now, sheep herding was always more geographically restricted than cattle ranching, with sheep often being herded from summer to winter pastures. These usually started up on the Colorado Plateau in the spring and summer, and then would drop down to the Salt and Gila Rivers, usually crossing by modern-day Strawberry and Cave Creek. Early on, Flagstaff was also the center of this burgeoning sheep industry. McClintock singles out a man named John Clark, who settled in Flagstaff in 1877 after starting out from Kern County, California with a flock of 5,000. And we also find Clark in the same business as the Eldon family, which have their own mountain named after them, and William Ashurst, who brought in a flock from Nevada and whose son would become a long-serving senator from Arizona. But maybe the biggest of all the sheepmen were the Daggs brothers. Originally from Missouri, the brothers arrived in Flagstaff around 1875, bringing with them 1,500 sheep from California. However, they would grow into the premier sheep herding outfit, supposedly having some 50,000 sheep grazing on the Colorado Plateau at their height. In 1888, the Tombstone Prospector newspaper called the Dags brothers the largest wool importers in the territory. One of the places where they, or rather the Tewkesbury family in a shareholding agreement, drove said sheep was a high, isolated pocket of grassland known as Pleasant Valley. The Dags and the Hashknife Cattle Company will definitely be name-checked and more thoroughly explored when we get to talking about the violence that erupted in that little out-of-the-way spot. As far as I can tell, because of their more limited geography and lesser numbers, The sheep industry wasn't as devastated as the cattle industry by Mother Nature's gut punch in 1891-1893, to but it definitely couldn't have been easy. That's all I have to say about sheep for the moment, but just because I still have some time today, I want to shoehorn in another aspect of animal husbandry in Arizona that definitely deserves some attention. Ostriches. That's right, I said ostriches. Anyone driving on I-10 between Casa Grande and Tucson, or if they've ever stood on top of Picacho Peak, can't have failed to notice the rather large ostrich farm on the south side of the road. But Arizona's history with the bird actually goes back more than a century. Now, McClintock says that the first breeding of the ostrich in the western hemisphere probably occurred in 1882. He says that they were first brought to Arizona a short six years later by a Mr. M. E. Clanton. and Clanton at one time worked for the Coston Ostrich Farm in Pasadena, California, which was apparently world-renowned for its birds and was something of a tourist destination that sold eggs, feathers, photos, and ostrich-pulled carriage rides. Clanton tried to bring 20 of them to Arizona, though apparently only two actually survived the trip and it wouldn't be until 1891 that the first ostrich was successfully hatched in the territory on the property of one Mr. Josiah Harbert. By 1896, Mr. Harbert apparently had a herd of 123 ostriches. By the by, apparently a group of ostriches is a herd and not a flock, so now you have a fun fact to use at parties. Over the years, a thriving ostrich industry developed in the Salt River Valley of all places, with some 6,000 birds distributed across a dozen or so farms by 1914. In fact, McClintock claims that, at the time, the Salt River Valley had more ostriches in confinement than any other place outside of South Africa. And because they were fenced in under basically the same conditions as cattle, for the purposes of tax assessments, and to kind of fit in with the theme of today's episode, they were treated as livestock. And in case you are wondering, the benefit of raising ostriches was for their plumes, which were part of women's fashions at the time. But before we leave off talking about ostriches, I want to make their connection to the present day. Because one of those who tried his hand at ostrich wrangling was none other than Dr. Alexander J. Chandler, who would become the eponym of the community in the Southeast Valley. Chandler had actually lived in Los Angeles in the 1890s, just a few stops along the trolley line from the Costin Ostrich Farm. And by 1905, Dr. Chandler was living in Mesa, and he already had a rather sizable herd of ostriches. In fact, for a while, he tried to buy up all the birds he could in order to secure his space as the owner of the largest ostrich herd in the entire territory. An article in the 1906 Copper-era newspaper reported that Chandler was trying to purchase some ostriches from somewhere for a purchase price of between $30,000 and $50,000. He never would become the ostrich king of the valley, however, as it soon became very profitable and fashionable among ranchers to be raising the gigantic birds. A fun side story to all this is that in 1914, Chandler bought 200 birds from another farm on the west side of Phoenix. Instead of paying to ship these birds via train to the East Valley, Chandler decided to do things the old-fashioned way. He hired some men to do an ostrich drive. The 50-mile drive across the desert would take a few days as the birds meandered along roads during the day and roosted at night, while the ostrich boys get it, not cowboys, ostrich boys, never mind, drove them, and kept an eye out. And all was going well until they swung around the far side of South Mountain. Here, something had spooked the ostriches, and they stampeded. Think basically the scene of the flocking gallimimus from the original Jurassic Park film. And that would be funny if they hadn't upset the carriage containing a married couple and caused the death of the wife from a skull fracture. Only 140 of the 200 birds actually made it to Chandler's Ranch following this stampede. And I wish there were some more fun ostrich anecdotes, but apparently World War I was the death knell of this industry, as styles changed and the huge plumes went out of fashion. But I went into this rather long digression into the long-necked birds because there is still some relevance to today. If you've ever attended the Chandler Ostrich Festival it is directly referencing Dr. Chandler and his herd. The festival was first held in 1988 as a way for the Chandler Chamber of Commerce to put on an event that was unique to the community, and it turns out that turning to Dr. Chandler and his history was just what the doctor ordered. So, if you have the chance, go check it out. It's coming back in March 2023. Before I let you go today, I want to discuss the podcast scheduling for the rest of the year. As I mentioned a short time ago, my wife and I are expecting our first child, whose due date is rapidly approaching. And apparently babies are supposed to be one of those things that rapidly and dramatically change your life, so it has left me trying to figure out how to juggle new baby, full-time work, and the podcast. Unfortunately, the conclusion I keep drawing is that I need to set the podcast aside for a bit. Okay, that sounds kind of ominous, but what do I mean by that? The good news is, I'm not talking about going dark for months and months because, well, let's face it, it's not like your life with a child is ever going to be calm. But the bad news is that I'm going to sign off for the rest of November. Between having the baby, relatives coming to see the baby, and just everything baby, being able to record is out of the question. I was always planning to take off the week of the 27th because of the long Thanksgiving weekend, so I decided to just expand that break by a couple of weeks. After I recover somewhat from everything baby, I'll be back in December with my recounting of the Pleasant Valley War, for as long as that takes to tell the story properly. Now, I think that's going to be about two episodes, but I also have like three different books about it and let's face it, I'm me, so I can see it stretching into three pretty easily. The end result being is that I'll release episodes again starting December 4th, but how many is up to how long it takes to get through that grisly story. After that, I'm going to go dark again because now we are getting perilously close to Christmas and New Year's. Finally, January 8th, 2023 will dawn, and we'll endeavor to get back to our weekly schedule. I hope to also use some of this downtime to plan out future episodes, but we'll see. All right, there you have it. No new episodes for the rest of November. A smattering of episodes in December, and then we're back full-time on January 8th. I'm sorry for taking so much time away from the podcast, but as a good friend has told me before, real life has to come first. There are still some amazing things to talk about coming up, and so I hope I'll see you all on the other side of this. Until then, I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.